scripture reading is from Acts chapter 6, verses 12, I'm sorry, verses, yes, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, may it really be the word of God speaking to us, for we need to hear your word. May, may our hearts be receptive, may our minds be active, and may your spirit be poured out among us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Should I switch to this mic? Because this is getting some feedback. Or just keep talking? Okay. Um, all right. We're good. No one likes to wait. That's what I'm beginning. No one likes to wait, including on Sunday mornings. And let me put it this way. I think no American likes to wait. Because I think there are cultures where waiting is not quite of, as, of anathema as it is to us. But we do not like to wait. To quote uh, Maria from um, Sound of Music, if, uh, right, uh, how's it go? raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens are some of our favorite things than waiting rooms and busy signals and flight delays are some of our least favorite things. If you're anything like me, you'll go to great lengths to avoid having to wait. This personally drives my wife crazy. Um, and I can say this because she's not in the room, but when I go somewhere to park, I'll just go to the farthest place away in the parking lot where I know there will be a spot and I'll walk. Because I don't want to spend time waiting to try to find a closer spot and it drives her crazy. And so I'll walk further if it means I don't have to wait. If you look in your modern day kitchen, most of the appliances in that kitchen are there to save us time. They're time-saving devices. Almost everything an appliance does used to be done by hand, and it would take you much longer. 
So you think of, you know, the oven. Initially, we used to cook over an open fire, some mythic earlier day, and then we discovered, hey, if you make an oven, it's a much more efficient way to cook. It cooks faster. And then we moved from fire-burning ovens to gas and electric ovens. That's even more efficient and faster. And now we have microwaves, where in five minutes, you can have something that at least resembles food. We don't like to wait. But frustratingly enough, waiting is built into the Christian life. It's part of the grain of Christian discipleship as we wait. Uh, we wait for God to answer prayers. We wait for God to open doors. We wait for maturity and perspective that can only come with the passage of time. Maybe we're waiting for a spouse or a job. Or we're waiting for physical hearing, healing. And most ultimately, every Christian is waiting for the return of Jesus. And so it's a very true thing to say that the entirety of Christian discipleship is one long wait. Now we're beginning this new series in the book of Acts, and this is a book which tells the story of how the Christian church began, where it all came from, how we got to the fact that there's a Vine Street Baptist Church in the year 2023 A.D., and, if, and we began it last week, and we left off with Jesus. He's been resurrected from the dead. He spends 40 days with his disciples. He's teaching them, and he gives them a specific command. He says, um, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends back up into heaven, and he leaves them, and they have to wait. He doesn't tell them how long they're going to be waiting. He doesn't really even give them that much detail on what exactly the spirit descending will look like. It's kind of like a, you'll know it when it happens, but just wait. And so we pick up in our text, and that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They're waiting, just like we wait. But how they wait is instructive for us, because they don't just sit around and kill time. They're not, it's not a passive waiting, but they're doing things in their waiting that, again, is so instructive for us as Christians who in so many different ways in our life will also wait. And the three different things that the, the apostles in the early church do will be the three points of our outline for us this morning. So in their waiting, the apostles first, they obeyed. And second, they prayed. And third, they searched the scriptures. And again, this gives us a whole lot of instruction as we in our own lives wait in various ways. So the first point is they obeyed. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 14, please, in chapter one. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now before we get into how the apostles are obeying, it's interesting just to notice the snapshot we get of the early Christian church. This is what the church looked like before the Spirit was poured out, right after Jesus had ascended. First, he describes there's the 11 apostles. Again, Judas was the 12th. He had killed himself uh, after he had betrayed our Lord. But then we get these 11 apostles. But then in verse 14, it says, along with or together with the women. And this is almost certainly the women that are mentioned in Luke 8. Uh, it would have been Mary Magdalene, and then a woman named Susanna, and a woman named Joanna who supported Jesus' ministry out of their own private means. They were 
financial donors, in a way, to Jesus' earthly ministry. And in fact, these three women were the first three people at the tomb on, on Resurrection Sunday. They went to anoint Jesus' body. They get to the tomb, and it's empty. And then here they're mentioned again. One commentator says that uh, Luke goes out of his way to mention the women in the community. And we'll see as we go through Acts, again, there are times where, you know, Luke, who's the author of Acts, he's like, and there were women there, and there were women, and there were women, by the way. And the reason he's doing this is that in the Judaism of the day, as well as in many pagan religions, there were very limited avenues for discipleship for women. It wasn't a matter of leadership. I mean, even to, to study the Torah as a Jew, you had to be a man. And the Christian community was not that way. In the Christian community, in the early church, women were cherished, integral members. In fact, they were part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. That's why they're mentioned here. Now, at the same time, they also weren't apostles. And we're going to have to wrestle through how do we make sense of that. But at the very least, what we can say is that the church was never meant to be a boys' club. The women were there. And then... Also, in addition to the apostles, these women, uh, Luke mentions the family of Jesus, his mother and his brothers and sisters. That's not referring to his spiritual brothers and sisters. Those are his literal, biological brothers and sisters. And in that one clause there, it's a whole testimony in and of itself. Because if you remember, Luke says that his family did not believe Jesus during his earthly ministry. And in fact, at one point, they thought he was going crazy. And they were, they were going to try to kind of rein him in a little bit to keep him from embarrassing himself. But here they are, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, believing that he's been raised from the dead. You and I know that we can convince people of all kinds of things, but our family knows the truth. The people we live with, they know who we really are. And so it's quite a testimony that Jesus Christ's own brothers and sisters, his own mother, man, they believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God, who'd been crucified and raised to life. And then in verse 15, it tells us this whole group was about 120. So it wasn't just the apostles and, and the women and, and the family of Jesus, but there's other members. But it's a small group. That's the church at this time, 120 people. And again, this first point, what are they doing as they wait? Well, they're obeying. Again, Jesus had commanded them to stay in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father came, the Spirit descended, and that's what they did. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem and all this passage is them waiting in Jerusalem. And here's a takeaway for us. When we're in a season of waiting, never underestimate the importance of just walking in simple obedience to what Jesus has made clear to us. Especially when you find ourselves in times of waiting where we're waiting for God to show us something or waiting on a decision we can get so caught up in, in God, what do you want me to do? Where, where, who do you want me to be? How am I supposed to handle this? Why won't you tell me now? That we almost get into kind of an analysis paralysis. We almost get frozen. Never underestimate the, the, the importance of just simple obedience when we're waiting on the Lord. It's probably worth noting, again, you know, the disciples, it's almost certain they did not really understand what it meant that the Spirit was going to be poured out. This is the same group who just in verse 6 were asking Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they still don't quite understand this whole kingdom of God thing and what Jesus had come to do. There's still stuff they have to learn. And so when Jesus says, you know, wait for the promise of the Father, they, prob they almost certainly did not understand what that was going to mean. And again, Jesus doesn't tell them how long they're going to be waiting. 
He just says, go wait in Jerusalem. And so that's what they do. And when we're in times of waiting and there's a lot of uncertainty and unclarity, what do we do? Well, we obey the commands that are clear. Um, some of you may not know the story of how I ended up at Vine Street. Some of you probably do know it. The short story is that no one else wanted me. <laughs> and so you got stuck with me. But the longer story, which is a little bit more helpful for our purposes, is um, we moved to Louisville so I could go to seminary, Mark could go to residency, and uh, we were in Marco's last year of residency, and I was finishing up um, a ministry commitment at another church, and we were just at a natural time of transition, and our intention was to move back to Texas, because that's where my wife's family from, uh, that's where her family still lives, and so I was, I was looking, there's, and the reason why I was having trouble finding a ministry position is I was looking in two cities, and when you're looking for ministry positions, you usually kind of have to go where the positions are, but I was looking in two cities in Texas, and literally, if there was a couple people at a church left, I was sending my resume. Um, man, there were some interesting churches that I applied to that God in his mercy, uh, you know, um, protected us from, and I could tell you some stories. But what's funny is that the way I heard about Vine Street, the way I came here, had nothing to do with any of my efforts that I was doing to try to find a position. The way I ended up hearing about Vine Street is like Christians do, I got together with a Christian brother just to catch up, hear how I was doing, pray for each other. And that friend happened to be Friedrich Hone, whose wife is Mary Ellen Hone, who's a former member of Vine Street. And as I'm sharing with him, as Christians are supposed to do, our burdens that Friedrich, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, nothing's turning up, I don't know where the Lord's directing, he was like, hey, I actually know a church in Louisville. That's looking for a pastor. When we're waiting on the Lord, never underestimate the importance of just walking in simple obedience and what God has made clear. Walking with the Lord in prayer and scripture. Walking in regular community with his people. And obeying the commands, again, that Jesus has made clear to us. So this is the first thing. Again, although the disciples were waiting on this promise and there's a lot of unclarity, they were doing what Jesus had told them to do. They're waiting we're going to stay here until, until it becomes clear what we're supposed to do. That's the first point. They obeyed. Second point, though, is that they also they prayed. And this is verse 14. Again, follow along as I read this. And all these, this is the whole church, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The theologian John Calvin, in his commentary on this, says in these verses we see two essentials for true prayer. One is that they were persevering, and the second is that they were united. So that's what we're gonna look at in terms of how they prayed. We're gonna look at how they persevered in prayer and then how they were united in prayer. So first, this prayer with perseverance. Again, there's 10 days in between Jesus' ascension and when he sends the Spirit on Pentecost. So they're waiting in Jerusalem for 10 days. And what are they doing in those 10 days? Well. They were devoting themselves to prayer. That doesn't suggest that they you know, got up and had a 30-minute quiet time and they went about their day, but they're ongoing. This is the main thing they're doing during these whole 10 days. And in fact, Luke 24 tells us that they were also continually in the temple blessing God. So the picture of this early Christian church for 10 days is that they were either in the temple worshiping or they're in the upper room praying. And they did some other stuff, as we'll see later in the passage, but that's mainly what they were doing for 10 days. Um, this wasn't a vacation, right? They weren't going hiking in the Judean hill country. They were, they were on their knees praying. They were persevering in prayer. And it's probably because 
That was one of the great themes of Jesus' teaching was perseverance in prayer. In fact, there's an entire parable that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke that is simply about persevering in our prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that's the parable of the unjust judge. Remember, there's a woman who's coming, and she's crying out to this unjust judge, give me justice against my oppressors. And the unrighteous judge is finally is like, she's, she's just annoying me, so I'm going to give her her justice. And it's like, well, if an unrighteous judge answers persevering requests, how much more will a loving father? Or if you remember when Jesus gives a teaching on the Lord's Prayer, what's the context? It's his disciples have been seeing him pray. They've watched him pray all night long, and they're like, you, you got to show us how you do that. And so Jesus gives them the prayer, the Lord's Prayer as a model. I think for many Christians, persevering in prayer may be one of the greatest challenges of prayer. Again, if you're anything like me, you can read your Bible for 30 minutes or an hour and find it very helpful and edifying. But if you try to sit down and pray for an hour, that's hard. That's labor. You know, if you ask me how I'm doing, I could spend 15 minutes giving you an update of my life like that. But if you ask me to pray for you for 15 minutes, it's after two minutes, I'm like, I think I've hit everything. What else am I supposed to say? Persevering prayer is hard. So how do we, I mean, again, this early church for 10 days, 12, 16 hours a day, they're praying. That's, how do they do that? And the text doesn't tell us. And so I can only work off of my own personal experience and even more importantly, what I've read elsewhere in scripture and throughout, and, 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 and reading men and women throughout the history of the church who would really be what you call prayer warriors. And so I wanna give you this secret of persevering prayer. The secret of persevering prayer is that there is no secret. To persevere in prayer, there's no magic formula, there's no silver bullet. It's a matter of choice, it's a matter of planning, it's a matter of discipline. George Mueller, he was a British pastor in the 1800s. He was what you would call a prayer warrior. The man started an orphanage. He had a very unique ministry in that he never asked for funds. He would just pray all day. And God seemed to answer his prayers, and he funded his entire ministry that way. He never once asked for money. Um, and, he just, and the way God would answer prayer was, was phenomenal. And he would just spend just hours every day in prayer. Uh, and one time someone asked him, how do you spend so much time in prayer? Like, how do you, you know, he must just like praying, some of us like watching Netflix, some of us like watching prayer. You know, it's like, they just must be what he does. And this is what he said. He said, every time he sits down to pray or kneels down to pray, he prays for at least 30 minutes before he actually wants to pray. 30 minutes of just fighting through, I don't want to be doing this right now, until finally he comes to a point where he actually wants to pray. I think one of the reasons probably why we struggle in persevering in prayer is we rarely break past that 30 minutes and break through into the actual presence and fellowship and communion with God. There are no shortcuts to developing a life of prayer. Again, it's a matter of choice, planning, and discipline. We've gotta choose, I'm gonna, be a, I'm gonna be a man of prayer, I'm gonna be a woman of prayer. We've gotta make that choice, that intention, it's what I wanna do, we've gotta plan it out. We all live busy lives. If it's not planned into your schedule, it ain't gonna happen. And then we've gotta have the discipline to actually follow through with it. And I tell you this, though, one of the best and most encouraging ways to learn how to pray at length is to do it with other Christians. 
Praying by yourself for an hour can be pretty tough, but you'd be amazed how praying with other Christians, an hour goes by real fast. Now we've taken the month of January off on our, it's our kind of our church Sabbath. Uh, we take a, a break from our regular church rhythms outside of Sunday morning worship. Beginning in February, we're gonna restart our monthly prayer meeting. It's the first Sunday of every month. We meet in the sanctuary at 5 p.m. Mark that on your calendars. Ask off work if you need to. Schedule your studying around it. Don't go on dates on Sunday night. You got six nights of the week to do dates. Set aside that time and come and seek God's face. Seek the kingdom of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Come ready to pray. So that's the first one, persevering in prayer. We see this, this is what they're doing this time, but also the second description of their prayers is that they, they were united in prayer. Again, they were praying with one accord. That means that they were praying for the same things. It wasn't just, you know, 120 people bringing their own individual desires, but they're all praying for the same thing. And what was that? Of course, it was, it was the promise of the Father, <laughs> that the Spirit would come. That's, that's what Jesus had said was going to happen, and that's what they're praying for. It's very much in the same vein of how Jesus taught, teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, prayer that is kingdom-focused. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's what they were praying. True prayer is prayer that perseveres and prayer that is united. And I'll say this about united prayer. Nothing puts church conflict to rest like united, passionate, kingdom-focused prayer. Um, Every church has conflict. The healthiest church on the planet has conflict because a church is made up of sinful people. And uh, whether the conflict is on the surface and everyone sees it or it's under the surface and no one really knows it's there, it's there. And almost always church conflict is a matter of personal preference and ego. Church conflict is almost always, I, I want it this way, I think my way is right. You want it your way, you think your way is right. Voila, there's conflict. But few things put our preferences and our egos in perspective than we see Jesus in his glory and we seek his kingdom together. It just puts everything else in perspective. And so when the church gets together to pray kingdom-minded prayers, prayers that are oriented around Jesus and his kingdom and his glory and his mission, that is when we see the spirit come. That's when spiritual renewal happens. So again, the first, they obeyed the, the, the clear commands of Christ in their waiting. Second, they prayed. But then third, they searched the scriptures. This is verses 15 to 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all but 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and following headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one, of the, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So his third point, they search the scriptures. Again, they're not just sitting around during these ten days of waiting, they're not just trying to kill time, they're doing things. They're obeying the clear commands of Christ, they're praying, but they're also picking someone to replace Judas as a twelfth apostle. And the reason they come to the conclusion to do that is because they have been searching the scriptures and they come to the conclusion that this is God's will for the community. Now, before I get into how they argue for this, first I just want to point out that in verse 16, Peter gives a really helpful and succinct definition of what the Bible is and why we want to search the scriptures and why Christians for 2,000 years have oriented ourselves around a book. So let's go ahead and look at verse 16 where Peter gives a definition of scriptural inspiration that's just, just good. Verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, two psalms that were written by David. He says the Holy Spirit spoke these psalms by the mouth of David. So the question is, when we get to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, who's speaking? Is it God or is it David? And the answer is yes. It's both. The Bible is pretty different than other religious texts. It's not a dictated work. In other words, Paul doesn't write because God's speaking in his ear. He's like, oh, okay, you want me to say this. Paul, when he writes his New Testament epistles, Luke, when he writes Acts, he's writing out of his own personality. He's a human being with experiences. And it's unlike, for instance, the Quran is the prophet Muhammad literally being dictated to from the angel, archangel Gabriel in a cave. Or if you know the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith finds plates that are buried in a mountain. It's a dictated work, but in the Bible, it's written by humans, but yet God is speaking as well, and God is so inspiring it so closely that although it's the true words of David, every word is exactly the word that God wants it to be. So we can both say David wrote this psalm, but it's also God speaking in every word. And that's, by the way, why we search the scriptures. Because it's not just an interesting collection of religious thoughts throughout the ages, but it is God himself who has spoken every word to us. You want to hear God speak to you, you go to his word. And every word is a word spoken to you. But So, so, so what Peter does, he says, look, he quotes from these two psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. They're both psalms written by David when he was being persecuted unjustly, and they're cries to God against his persecutors. And there's a time in each psalm where he basically asks God to bring judgment on his persecutors, and that's what uh, that's what Peter quotes from. So may, may his camp become desolate. Again, that's referring to this original persecutor of David. You know, let another take his office. And then somehow P Peter gets from that to therefore, ergo sum, we need a 12th apostle. And you gotta ask, what, what just happened? I missed something here. And what Peter is doing is he's interpreting the Bible in a new way. He's interpreting the Bible in a way that points to Jesus Christ himself as the main topic of the whole Bible. And this is what Jesus himself had been teaching his church to do. In Luke chapter 24, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, 
we get Jesus teaching his disciples how to read the Bible with him as the subject. Luke 24, verses 44 to 45, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If you do a word search through the Old Testament, the name Jesus Christ is nowhere to be found. But what Jesus is saying is that the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, is all talking about him. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that the Old Testament, it's not, it's not like this. It's not like Old Testament was plan A, didn't work out, so we go to plan B, which is Jesus in the New Testament. What Jesus is teaching that church and teaching us is that he was always plan A. From the very beginning, from the moment sin entered the world, the plan of God was to send his own son as a substitute for us to bear our sin that we might have life. And what that means is that every part of the Old Testament, every part of it, in some way, is either foreshadowing Christ, is alluding to Christ, is preparing the way for Christ, or is in fact a direct prophecy of Christ. All of the Bible points to Jesus. And so, and so Peter, he's been searching the scriptures with this new way of reading it. And all of a sudden he's realizing Psalms like 69 and Psalm 109, which are referring to a real experience of David because the spirit is the one who's behind this is actually foreshadowing sufferings that Jesus himself, the Messiah himself, will go through. And so as he's studying this, he's realizing, oh, and it says his off, you know, someone else should take his office. And so here's, here's the point, though, for us, for his third point, is that Peter's been studying the scriptures, searching the scriptures, and that's why they come to this conclusion that they need to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. It's not like Peter just stands up randomly and is like, oh, by the way, I think we should do this. It's like, as they've been praying, as they've been obeying, they've also been searching the scriptures. And they see this is what God wants us to do. So again, in this, in this time of waiting, the early Christians, they were, they were obeying the clear commands of Jesus. They were they were persevering in united prayer, but they were also searching the scriptures to understand the will of God. Now, before I get into an application on this last point, I want to give a brief word on apostles. Because Peter, again, gives a really helpful definition of what makes an apostle, and this is just a real brief aside. Um, but in, 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 it's in verses 21 to 22. Now, when the New Testament uses the word apostle, it almost always refers to the 12 apostles who are listed here. There's some evidence that there may have been other apostles later on in the church, but when it said, but, 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 but they were not part of the 12. It was still different. And the 12 apostles occupied a unique place in the church. In Ephesians, it says that the church itself was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And that stands for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the apostles were the ones who wrote scripture. They were the foundation of the church. They had a non-repeatable leadership position in the church. And we're going to see why that was a unique, non-repeatable leadership position in how Peter describes what apostles were in this passage. So go ahead and look at verses 21 to 23, and we're going to see three qualifications for being an apostle. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. To be an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus from day one until the end. From the time that he was baptized by John the Baptist and through his crucifixion and resurrection until his ascension. To be one of these 12 apostles, you had to have walked with Jesus the whole time. Second, it says, um, you know, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, end of verse 22. To be an apostle, you had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
It's seen in its resurrected state. And then finally, the third qualification is while they're praying, they said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. To be one of the 12 apostles was to be uniquely chosen by Jesus. If you remember when Jesus, in his earthly ministry, chose his 12, he went up on the mountain, prayed all night, and then he came down, he had a lot of disciples, and out of those disciples, he hand-selected the 12. And so to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to be uniquely chosen by him. And this explains, by the way, why they cast lots at the end. You read this and you're like, what's going on here? Like they're literally casting dice to figure out who's gonna be the next apostle. And there's some Old Testament precedent of using lots to make decisions. In fact, Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And what it seems to be going on in the case is, is, there, is there, they're trying to let the Lord literally choose who's gonna be the 12th apostle. It's not the church that's picking it, it's Jesus Christ who picks it. But again, this is a non-repeatable church leadership position. And, and the reason why we can't have apostles today is because there's no one left alive who was with Jesus for his entire earthly ministry. Like those people have all died a long time ago. There are no people left alive who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Now, there are denominations and churches that will, that will call leaders in their church apostles, and, and sometimes they mean, you know, that can mean various things, but it's just not, it's probably not the wisest thing to do. Apost- the apostles were a unique, unrepeatable church leadership position that was not repeatable, unlike, for instance, pastors and deacons, which are repeatable. We still have pastors and deacons. So that was free. You're welcome for that little aside on what is an apostle. But again, let's move into application. So, the apostles were obeying, they were praying, and they were searching the scriptures. I remember hearing a story of John Piper, and it's just such a classic Piper story, I wanna share it. It's Piper at his best. So he was a college professor. So he was Professor Piper. And he had a group of college students who came to him and said, um, we wanna know what God's will for our lives are. Something you do in college, right? You're like, what am I supposed to study? Who am I supposed to marry? I just wanna know, and, and so they came to John Piper and they said, we just, we just wanna know what God wants us to do with our life. Whatever he wants us to do, we'll do it. I just, how do I know what God's will for my life is? And they're thinking in terms of, you know, does God want me to be a missionary? Does he want me to be a, go to ministry? Does he want me to start a, a homeless ministry? And, and John Piper, um, again, classic John Piper fashion, quotes them First Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so you can imagine, again, John Piper in very emphatic fashion, you wanna know what God's will for your life is? This is God's will! Seek sexual purity! You know, and and they're like, that's not quite what I meant. (laughs) But I think Piper's instincts here reflect the spirit of the early church. If we wanna know God, if we wanna know Jesus Christ, if we wanna know what God's will for our lives are, well, then we search the scriptures prayerfully and humbly, and then we walk in obedience to what he shows us. You know, some in this room have been reading the Bible for decades, and some have been reading the Bible for a few years. And it doesn't matter whether you've been reading the Bible for 50 years or for 50 days. We will never come to a point where we no longer need to search the scriptures. And the reason for that is until we see Christ face to face, we will never come to a point in this life where we don't need to know God anymore, where we don't need to know his will for our lives. Now, I've been, I've been reading the Bible for, you know, regularly for almost 30 years, which is not as long as some of you, but that's not a short time. And I'll tell you this, after a while, 
when you search the scriptures, it becomes less and less a matter of just learning something new. Um, again, when you've read the Bible dozens of times and parts of it hundreds if not thousands of times, it's just not that common that I'll come to a part of the Bible and say, I never knew Paul said that. I didn't know David did that. It becomes much more a matter not of learning something new, but of bringing the word deeper into my heart. Into the wellsprings of, 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 of who Mike is, the inner being of me, of, of being transformed into the image of the word of God, which is Jesus Christ himself. We'll never get to the point where we don't need to continue to search the scriptures. And so in kind of conclusion, again, in the book of Acts, Jesus has been resurrected. In the 40 days before he ascended back into heaven, he gave his disciples a command, wait for the promise of the Father. Wait in Jerusalem, specifically. And so the disciples do that. And the way that they wait is instructive for us, who in our discipleship are gonna have to wait in various ways, for various reasons, and that as they were waiting, they were doing things. They were walking in simple obedience to what Christ had clearly commanded them. They were praying, persevering in prayer, united in prayer, and they were searching the scriptures. And in some sense, that's the pattern for the entirety of Christian discipleship, because I've already mentioned, the whole of our Christian life is one of one long wait for our Lord to come back and take us home. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we wait for the day when our faith will be sight, and for some of us that will be sooner, and for some of us that may be later, Lord, may we be a people who walk in obedience to what you have told us. May we be a people who seek you in prayer who come together in prayer and to pray one thing, which is your will, your kingdom, your glory. May we be a people who never grow tired of searching your word. May it be the living word ever new because it is your word, it is your spirit. May we walk in these ancient paths that our parents and our grandparents and those who've gone before us have walked and may we walk in them and not grow tired. We ask that your spirit will help us where we are weak. May we love you more. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.